Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 302. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today I'm thrilled to share a really inspiring and timely conversation with Minda Hartz. Minda is the CEO of The Memo, LLC, and an award-winning, best-selling author of The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. Minda is a professor at NYU Wagner. She hosts a live weekly podcast called Secure the Seat. And in 2020, Minda was named the number one top voice for equity in the workplace by LinkedIn. She's an Aspen Ideas Festival scholar. She's been featured on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Fast Company, in the New York Times and Time Magazine. And Minda frequently speaks at companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Nike, and Bloomberg on topics such as managing diverse teams, courageous leadership, and advancing women of color in the workplace. Today, Minda and I talk about uh, the state of the world <laughs> in 2021, how we can all uh, curb unconscious bias, advance women of color in the workplace, and be better allies uh, to one another, as well as understanding and calling out microaggressions as we see them. So without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with the one and only Minda Hartz. Minda, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I am delighted to have you here to talk specifically around uh, the experiences of Black women in the workplace, especially in 2021. My God, what a rough start <laughs> this year has had uh, after already a very tough uh, 2020 uh, with white supremacy just at the forefront, it feels, of the daily news and our politics. So uh, first and foremost, how are you holding up? I feel like I'm asking everybody this these days, but how truly are you are you coping with the uh, the nonsense and the hatred on display? Yeah, it's it's a mess. That's the, uh, what I can about summarize it. It's it's sad to see, um, but it's at least for a black woman, um, it's something that I've seen for almost my whole entire life. And so for me, mm. I'm just glad that we're finally, as a country, addressing some of these kind of demons that have mm. we haven't for so long. And so I think the only way we can get to solution is when we acknowledge that there is a problem. And I think, I mean, you have to be like blinder than Mr. Magoo, not to acknowledge that we have a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. In some ways, the quiet, subtle, everyday racism that's harder to pinpoint can be harder to fight. This this kind of racism that we're seeing in 2021 and last year especially, too, feels so flagrant it's impossible to ignore. So yeah, absolutely. it's a great way of looking at it. So you wrote uh, The Memo, and I'm excited to learn more about... Uh, what inspired you to focus on 
writing a book like The Memo, which really dispels myths and shares secrets for women of color who want to get ahead and get their seat at the table. Can you take me back to what first inspired you to to write this book? Because writing a book is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> you you know that, right? <laughs> so yeah. It's not, a lot of people say they want to write, and then once you write it, you're like, oh, this is a lot heavier of a lift than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. very rewarding. Um, you know, for me, I spent 15 years in corporate America, and I was always the only one, uh, the only black woman, the only woman of color in a professional role. And and after a while, you start to feel invisible, like you can't bring the pieces of yourself that you want to, to the workplace. And I just, you know, I loved my salary. I loved the benefits. I loved the stability. But what I hated was feeling isolated, feeling like I could never call someone out when I've experienced some sort of racial harm. Um, And I started to settle into those microaggressions, settle into those biases. And I told myself that this must just be how it is for women like me. And so let's just try to make it work. And eventually um, I started to realize that, you know what, I'm doing myself a disservice. I'm doing future women of color and current women of color service to not make the workplace better than I found it. And I really wanted to be able to create a, a love letter to women of color to say, hey, I know how you might be feeling. I know no people are not acknowledging it. Sometimes we're questioning if it's even happening because we've been told that we're taking it the wrong way. And, you know, you fill in the blank. And um, I just needed, I needed black women. I needed women of color to know that their stories and their careers matter. But most importantly, I needed those who manage us or work alongside of us to know that the workplace doesn't work for everybody. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of books out there, uh, including Bossed Up, that have been written for women in the workplace, especially Lean In, I know you've mentioned in the past, mm-hmm. kind of cl- lump everyone together. And, you know, when you're not a person of color, especially, <laughs> you bring that ignorance to the to the perspective of writing a book about women. You know, women of color kind of are the statistics that get added on uh, after saying, well, all women experience a wage gap and then women of color experience an even bigger wage gap, for example. Uh, did you feel like with your book, The Memo, you were really able to center black women's lived experiences and women of color as opposed to that being like a secondary thought? Absolutely. I, I, I think that was like my frustration in a lot of books because yeah. I, I love to read and I would always have to say, well, I know that that's not, that's what white women experience, not what black women experience, but there's still good, you know, advice inside of a lot of those books. But I wanted to be able to write for, to center, you know, black and brown women. That was my intention because even recently there was an article that went out that said 140,000 women lost their jobs in December of 2020. But when you really uncover it, it was mostly black and brown women that are black and Latina women who lost their jobs in December of 2020. So that intersectionality is so important because so many people get left out of the career narrative. Yeah. It's interesting how gender seems to trump race every time. And Mm -hmm. that sort of that that lens can be really troubling and intersectionality is easier said than done and it's not that easily said either you know yeah um so i, I love uh the approach that you've taken i want to i want to talk for a moment about microaggressions i mm-hmm. think 
by their very nature, they're presented as something small. Uh, and yet they don't feel very small when experienced or they don't feel very small in when they're accumulated over time. Can you help me understand and really help our listeners understand the many different ways in which microaggressions manifest and what their impact really is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, the best way to, de- <clears throat> to describe it is it's, you know, when you go to the doctor and the the doctor will say, well, tell tell me about your pain point, right? Is it a one or is it a 10? And, you know, 10 mm. being like excruciating. And sometimes in the workplace, the microaggressions are that three, but it's that three all day long, right? That right. starts to accumulate um, that three all year long, right? That four and, and a three might be, maybe I'm perhaps mistaking you for the other black woman in the workplace, right? But if that mm. happens every time, those threes start to feel like a 10, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that people may not mean harm when they say certain things, when they um, act a certain way, but the reality is somebody receives harm on that, right? And I think it's so important that we talk about this harm inside of the workplace is not just, oftentimes we think, oh, it's just sexual harm, right? That happens at work, but no, verbal harm, Uh, psychological safety is very important. And so I had a manager and I write about this in the memo, but my first manager, he he was a white man and he would always make statements. Like I had burnt orange fingernail polish on and he would say, oh, you people love your bright colors. And he would joke around for 15 minutes about how black people like bright colors. And in those moments, I was never, I didn't feel I had the agency to be able to say anything, right? Because, oh, I'd be taking it the wrong way. Oh, you're just playing the race card. We're met with so many of these things that even when we feel it, we're then silenced to be even be able to talk about it. So just think Mm. about that. Women go through that, their whole careers being silenced uh, for being a woman, but then okay, let's add another layer, right? Race and not being able Mm. to talk about it. And so I think that accumulation, think about the psychological harm that women of color have to battle through for their entire careers if we don't find solutions where everybody realizes that they play a role in this workplace toxicity. Absolutely. And I think your point around intention is really important here for everybody to to listen up and and absorb, right? No matter how well-intentioned you are, you're going to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have made plenty of mistakes in my time and we none of us are perfect. When you unintentionally create a negative impact or create harm for someone else, your intentions don't really matter, do they? <laughs> it's really more about the impact than your pure intentions. And so I wonder on both sides of the equation here, let's say we'll take your example uh, of, of a manager who makes a statement about your nails and extrapolates it into black people love bright colors, which is, wow, that's just a leap uh, of reasoning, but okay. You know, in retrospect, would you counsel someone in your position to say something? Or how would you counsel a young black woman who's listening to this podcast to react to the next microaggression that's coming her way? And similarly, when a manager or anyone, any of us really put our foot in our mouths, how would you counsel them to react? Like, what's the, what's the next step after harm has been done where we can begin to try to heal or try to, I don't know, like 
try to undo some of the harm or try to acknowledge the harm, try to be better and learn better and, and do better? Yeah, I think that's a, another great question. You know, so the thing of it is, I would say, if even if I had to go back to the future, right, and tell Minda, <laughs> what would you have done in that situation? Yeah. I would have... I would have said something to him because he would go on to think that it was okay to say those sorts of things every day. So I would hear that, and sometimes several times a day, right? And so if it bothers you enough, um, I think you should address it. And, and I think the other part of that is having these courageous conversations, but then the person that is on the, is listening to that, be a courageous listener, right? The person is not telling you because they want you to feel bad or that they think you're racist necessarily, it's so that you can be better, right? So that you don't continue to perpetuate a cycle of harm. And I think we have to get out of our feelings and say, oh, they think I'm a bad person. No, this is about making work work for everybody. This is about not doing it again if we're aware of it, right? And so for me, I never said anything to my manager because I didn't think I could, but I often would think, well, how many other when I left that environment, how many more women of color, black women, would he go on to say those sorts of things, right? And if I had said something, perhaps I could have made my time better right there, but then he would have learned a lesson. Maybe he wouldn't have changed, but maybe he would have thought about what was said to him, right? Because I think, uh, again, we sometimes fear those type of conversations around race, but how do people get better if they're if you never tell them? But it takes courage on, on both sides, right? To, to initiate the conversation, but then also to listen and, and hear the person out and then say, you know what, that wasn't my intention, but I'm so glad that you told me because I don't want to harm you in that way. Right. And I think that's where the magic happens when we can hear each other out. And the last thing that I'll say is in those environments, when my manager was saying these things, I had other colleagues that were there and would hear these things. No one ever acknowledged it. No one even came to me and would say, you know what, what Bob said was really horrible. You know, I failed you. I didn't say anything, but next time I will. And I think for so long, I used to think, well, it's only, you know, I'm right. his name, but it's actually the bystanders too, right? And I think later I was real realized that that harm hurt just as much someone who saw these things and never did anything. And so I want, you know, those listening to also think about what role you play when you don't step in. And it may not be in that moment, but maybe after the fact or, you know, so much of that happens and and it's just the burden is so heavy on um, women of color. Yeah. And I'm so glad you took the conversation there because that was my next question. What is the role of allyship in this conversation? What does allyship look like? I think it's kind of become quite performative in some ways. So what does true allyship look like? And I'd love for you to tell us more about what you've been saying recently around black women being allies for other black women. So talk to me about where allyship fits in and in combating microaggressions. Absolutely. I, you know, I make the joke sometime that I think if black women or women of color, if we could have <laughs> solved the, these racial inequalities in the workplace by ourselves, we would have done it a long time ago, right? But we can't right. <laughs> do it by ourselves. Uh, we actually need um, partners. And I, I like to use the word success partners. You know, are you invested in my success? I want to be invested in your success. So when we have a relationship, you feel like you want to show up for me. And I think Allyship for me is a very triggering word. I think in context, Mm. I'm happy that we have it because I think foundationally everybody understands (laughs) what that means. But the issue that I see is so many people 
put the badge on themselves without having any action occur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is so harmful in and of itself. You're like, look like, at oh, me. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. But when's the yeah. Last time you've actually shifted that allyship into action. Like, what have you done? You know, in the last thirty, sixty, ninety days. Okay, you read the book. Great. What was the next step? Right. You know. Mm. And I think that if we want to make the workplace work for everybody, then everyone has to see themselves through the lens of how can I make this better? What am What am I doing? Or what am I not doing that could make this better? So um, I think that allyship is very important, but basically it's relationship building, right? Would you Mm -hmm. want someone to step in for you when someone has harmed you in a certain way? Or would you want people to pretend that it didn't happen, right? Or if that was your daughter or your son going through that, you would hope that there was somebody um, who was humanizing their experience in the workplace and making it better. And I think that sometimes we to say, well, I don't want to get involved. But think about how much harm is caused when we don't get involved, right? That's why we have a lot of the workplace issues that we have. And I think if you really want to be an ally, then you got to, it requires something of you. <laughs> and, and I think that's the hard part, right? People want to, you know, write their name on the on the the badge and say, yes, I'm an ally. But when it's when, when the rubber meets the road, they're nowhere to be found. So I would say don't call yourself an ally in 2021 if you're not ready to, to, to put it into action. Yeah. I love, I love how I think Ibram X. Kendi writes about this in How to Be an Anti-Racist where he, he kind of focuses on racism as, an, as a verb right? As like a system and not racist as this static noun. And I think ally is similar, right? If we, if we're afraid of being deemed a racist, uh, then we don't need to focus on swapping out that singular label for ally. We need to think, how am I being actively Mm anti-racist? How am I being involved in calling out or calling in when I see microaggressions go down. Um, And I'll link to a few related podcasts on both of those topics in the show notes today. But yeah, I think your point and your, your kind of call to action that I'm hearing here is so well taken, which is how can we evaluate starting with ourselves and our own households and our own teams? How am I actively being an ally? I think you've said some things on LinkedIn recently around not over-relying on white allies. Talk to me about that. Where do, where do people of color being allies for other people of color, where does that fit in? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because, um, you know, some people see, see what I said as controversial. And I'm not saying that we don't need white allyship. It's yes and. But I right. don't want black women or women of color to feel like we can't be that for each other as well. Mm. You know, we don't have to wait on them to show up for us. Like we can show up for ourselves too. And I I consider myself, even with the advocacy that I do as being an ally for other black women and women of color, because some of us, um, we all have a voice. We just have to decide how we want to use it, but some people haven't activated it yet. So for those of us who feel a little more comfortable, how are we leveraging our platforms to be able to speak on the behalf of those who haven't activated Mm. their voices yet? And I think in the, like, global movement building work around gender and race, that is pretty new because, you know, especially if I look at feminism, second wave, third wave, whatever wave we're in now, there was a long time when the one woman at the table felt threatened by the idea of another woman coming to the table. Um, 
And this this whole motto from America's first black women's club, lift as you climb, I think is really speaking to what you're saying, which is just because there's only one of us at the table right now uh, as a black woman, that does not mean that I should feel threatened by other women of color on their come up journey. You know what I mean? And and being actively supportive of sponsoring and, and allying with one another, it runs contrary to what like white supremacy would have us all believe, which is that we're in competition for the one seat at the table. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what people forget is that when the seat when the table was created, they weren't thinking of any of us, any women. Right. Right? So they certainly yeah. weren't thinking about black women. And so that table was configured to keep us out, right? We never had a totally. seat to begin with. So we get to now determine and redefine what success looks like. And success is not a solo sport. You know, and, and I want people to to be able to have access to the opportunities. And if we have if we do have the seat, it's not enough, you know, to have it. But what are you doing with it? Uh, how are you making that room better? And so I hope more people will feel that, you know, abundance mindset and not that scarcity, <laughs> which is super hard because I don't think it's everyone's first instinct, no. um, <laughs> especially when you feel insecure in your own in your own power. Um First of all, I just want to shout out to two incredible quotes uh, from incredible black women over the years who have said, who have lots of different quotes related to this metaphor of the table uh, and your podcast being Secure the Seat, which I want to talk about in a moment. But we've got Shirley Chisholm saying, you know, if uh, if you weren't offered a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, which I love. And then speaking to what you said just now, Michelle Obama really carried that metaphor further when she said, no, 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 don't just bring a folding chair. Don't just get a seat at the table. I think it was at the United State of Women Summit when I, I saw her live share this gem. She said, some of us women have been just so grateful to be at the table. We've been clinging on to that table for dear life mm -hmm. instead of really shaking it up and being a disruptor. And I know that's something you care a lot about. What, what does securing the seat mean to you? And what do you hope women of color in particular do? with that seat at the table. Yeah, um, I love that quote by um, Mrs. Obama. And I think that secure the seat is really uh, building upon that too, is that it's not enough to just be there. Don't be grateful just to be sitting there, right? Looking around, but how are you securing it? How are you adding value? Uh, there was a time when there were no one in the room that looked like you, right? Don't let, don't let you, don't allow yourself to be the last and don't be silent, right? The work to get to the table was just the beginning. Now we really have the opportunity to shape and mold a new table that works for everybody. And so if you're not ready to secure that seat and you just want to take up space, then think about how you're doing a disservice to yourself and to future women of color that occupy that room. And so it's a responsibility um, and it's a heavy one. And I don't think a lot of people look at it that way, but we should because there's so much there and there's ownership in that. And we don't want to just be um, a warm body. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Totally. I think of almost like there's a electoral politics analogy here, which is running the campaign is just the first part. That's just the prerequisite to getting in the room and having, you know, don't waste the opportunity to serve while you're there. 
the subtitle of your book, The Memo, is what women of color need to know to secure a seat at the table. Obviously, you can't sum up your whole fantastic book in one answer on one podcast interview, but what are some of the key messages that you elaborate upon in the memo that you really want women of color to know? Thank you for that. Uh, I would say that, yes, there are systemic issues inside the workplace that have been put in place to try to hold us back, but we are also the curators of our own career and there are ways that we can keep moving Mm -hmm. forward and and also find those places that you can grow. I think for so long, women of color, black women, we try to make everything work, right? At the expense of our own well-being. And some places are not going to ever do right by us. And so sometimes it's going to take that courage to strategize, to find either a new department or a new a whole new table created by yourself or a new company that's going to allow you to grow. And I think we, we have to be honest with ourselves. Um, the other part is, uh, knowing your worth, right. And a lot of that starts internally. Um, we look for a lot of internal or external validation in a lot of these spaces. And because we've been microaggressed for so many years and so many workplaces, we don't see ourselves as the asset anymore. And so working through that pain and healing so that you can be, right within to be able to secure your seat because you're not going to be able to secure your seat if you're still have a lot of workplace harm that has been caused and it prevents you from seeing yourself as the person that you need to be. So those are just a couple of the the things that I, I talk about. That's awesome. I'm looking at the uh, table of contents here too. I like that you have for my predominantly white listenership here, uh, a chapter called No More Passes for My White Readers. <laughs> Why should the women listening, uh, regardless of race or, or identity on that front, uh, buy your book? Great question. It, you know, <laughs> I wrote the memo with women of color at the center of the career narrative, but I wrote the book for everybody, mm. not just that chapter, but the whole thing. Because if you're a manager, you're a colleague, you're a leader, you, you market to women of color, these are the things that you need to know so that you can potentially be a better ally, right? <laughs> Knowing right. What, what our experiences are. And so that's part of it. But I really hone in um, in that last chapter, really speaking to um, white men and women to say, hey, here's some things that maybe you didn't weren't aware of because we haven't we haven't talked about it, but let me be mm. that black friend that you might not have who's going <laughs> to tell you that, yeah. hey, some of the things you've been doing are not okay and let's work through it and so that you can be help us secure our seat at the table. <laughs> totally. I love that. And thank you for doing that, by the way. <laughs> I think too often the labor of explaining racism and sexism too often falls uh, on those who are bearing the brunt of it. Um, And so in a way, you know, you've done us all a great service by writing the book that you wish were already out in the world (laughs) Um, and doing that work. What do you feel like since making this transition uh, from your, you know, very comfortable 15-year corporate career to launching into this this world as an author, as a speaker, uh, as a consultant, what do you feel like has been the most courageous act that you've taken in the past few years? And has it, you know, what have you learned from venturing out in that way? Yeah, I, I think about it every day. Like, you know, this, I often said, well, um, I had no, in, I had no intentions on being an entrepreneur and sometimes- right. Black women are forced into it because of 
how the workplace has operated. And the one thing that I, I always wanted to do was to help remind women of color that your dreams don't have to be deferred because of a bad workplace. And so mm. I want you to be able to choose entrepreneurship. So my goal is to help leaders and our colleagues make the workplace better so that we can stay in corporate America. Like many of us want to aspire to the C-suite, right? But because of certain cuts, it's hard to stay in these places. And so for me, I want, it's been a pleasure to be able to be the voice for, to speak on behalf, not for, but on behalf of many women of color who aren't able to say some of the things to leaders that I have the opportunity to do. And for me, it's scary, right? But I, I always say, hey, so many more people benefit when you're courageous, Minda. You know, you've benefited from the courage of Shirley Chisholm, from Harriet Tubman, from Kamala Harris. And so it's up to you to pay it forward. And so, um, and if people are inspired by your words, just like they are, you know, from your from your work, that that gives them the strength to be able to to speak to. And then it's not just me, it's them. And then we create this harmonious um, uh, choir in the workplace to make it better for, for the next generation. So for me, it's really an mm. honor to be able to do this work. And, and one day I hope that the conversation changes, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. You mentioned Kamala Harris and for all of our listeners, first of all, you should know that we are recording this episode before inauguration day by just a week and a day. Uh, but let's all take a deep breath and assume everything goes well. <laughs> everything, you know, comes to pass as it should in the next eight days. What does uh, a vice president, a madam vice president like Kamala Harris mean to you, Minda? Ah, oh, yeah. I, you know, I'll be 100% honest. I was surprised when President Barack Obama was the pre- named the president yeah. and even more surprised um, by um, Madam um, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris because I just know how how racially divided this country has been. And yeah. sometimes because they many people have not seen black and brown people in leadership positions, they think that we can't do them, right? We don't, we're not we don't have enough experience, but we've never had the opportunity to show you, right? And so the mirror of, you know, President-elect Joe Biden being the ultimate sponsor, he could have chose any woman that he wanted. And and he chose Kamala Harris, not because of charity, but because she was the right person for the job. But he looked at a diverse slate of candidates. And I think that what it shows me is that if corporations and organizations can mirror the same thing. And so I'm excited to see how this um, hopefully trickles down into other um, industries as well. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. What a great note to end on. Where can our listeners uh, keep up with you and your fantastic work, Minda? Thank you so much. Uh, So the best place is mindahearts.com and from there you can find me on all my platforms but I'm most active on Twitter at mindahearts awesome Minda thank you so much for spending some time with us here today thank you for having me I had such a great time to get all the details and links to show notes that were mentioned by Minda and I in this conversation head to bossedup.org slash episode 302. That's bossedup.org slash episode 302. You can always find uh, all of our show notes and links and cute quote graphics to share uh, and more information about my guests at uh, episode and then the episode number after bossedup.org slash. 
And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. This one comes in from Valerie in the Courage community on Facebook, which if you have not joined, get on right now. Join us uh, at the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. It's been called the best place on Facebook by many a member, including Valerie, who shared this exciting and delightful example of allyship in action. Valerie wrote, quote, my promotion starts next week, and my boss said he's going to try to negotiate a better pay rate for me. I'm excited for the position either way, and if we don't get the number we want, appraisals are in March, so there will be a second opportunity. That's awesome, Valerie. I'm a big believer in kind of asking to ask for more, enlisting the support of allies and sponsors like it sounds like your boss is, and really strategically equipping them with the information that they need to advocate and negotiate on your behalf. It sounds like you've done just that, Valerie. Congratulations for others who are listening who want to be like Valerie. I'll drop a link to um, a related podcast I did recently on how to position yourself for a promotion, which could be of support to you in this endeavor in 2021 as well. And now, boss, I want to hear from you. What did you think about my conversation with Minda today? What key lessons are you taking away from this episode? How are you going to practice allyship in action? How are you going to proceed uh, in 2021, really pursuing courageous leadership and uh, creating more inclusive workplaces. I'd love to hear from you. Weigh in uh, at the show notes page in the comments section or tag me at Emily Aries or at boss.org uh, and share this podcast episode far and wide with the folks in your world who you think should hear it. Honestly, this show has grown very slowly, very organically because of people like you who take a moment to not just listen and learn, but rate, review, and share the podcast if you feel like it's made a difference in your life and in your profession and your approach to how you boss up and are hopefully bossing up those around you. All right, until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb. 